0: We often miss the opportunity to recognize um, that the relationships that are needed to get into communities and to successfully leverage the assets that exist there uh, requires trust building and power sharing.
1: Welcome to Overloaded, Understanding Neglect where we explore the complexity of child neglect, its root causes and challenges that families experience that overload them with stress, and the opportunities that we have to improve our communities, organizations, and systems that build strong families and thriving children. Hey everyone, this is Luke Waldo, your host for this podcast series and the director of program design and community engagement for the Institute for Child and Family Wellbeing Our partnership between Children's Wisconsin and the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Helen Bader School of Social Welfare. Last week, in the first part of this episode, we started our conversation on systems change by identifying and understanding the problems that hinder our ability to reach our aspirations for our children, families, and communities. We discussed problems that derive from our policies, practices, and resource flows that too often focus on interventions with families when it's too late and therefore lead us to treating the symptoms of root causes like trauma and poverty, rather than preventing them. We explored the problems of mistrust between our systems, organizations, and the families that they serve. This mistrust is often caused by power imbalance and absence of authentic engagement, which leads to families feeling that their voices and experiences are not valued and ultimately not reflected in how we design our policy, practice and resource solutions. And lastly, We heard many examples of the challenges underlying our mental models, the beliefs and biases that we hold and that influence our behavior. These mental models drive our relationships, who we invite to the decision-making table, and how we develop our policy, practice, and resource priorities. If we are to achieve transformational systems change that reduces family separations for reasons of neglect, we will have to confront our historical mental models and the inequities that they have created. In today's episode, We shift our focus from the problems to the opportunities that we have to effectively change our child welfare system so that we might reduce family separations for reasons of neglect it's important that we revisit the child welfare system's guiding principles from which systems change opportunities will be explored today the child welfare system is organized around the following principles ensuring child safety achieving permanency with a safe and stable family and promoting well-being Throughout today's episode, we will again frame the opportunities for systems change through the drivers that we discussed in the past episode. We use the drivers defined in a framework developed by FSG and John Kenya, Mark Kramer, and Peter Senge, called the water of systems change. They are policies, practices, and resource flow, relationships and power dynamics, and mental models. The complexity of systems change is real and therefore demands that we recognize that many of these drivers interact fluidly with one another. As Kenya, Kramer, and Sanj write, it is important to keep in mind that systems change as a way of making real and equitable progress on critical social and environmental problems requires exceptional attention to the detailed and often mundane work of noticing and acting on much that is implicit and invisible to many, but is very much in the water. I will do my best to point out these mundane details to make them more visible, more approachable, but I ask you to listen carefully for them as our many experts share their experience. To begin our conversation, we are going to turn the systems waterfall upside down as Dr. Julie Woodbury discussed in last week's episode and begin with a focus on mental models and how they impact trust, inequities, and the relationships between our systems, staff, and the families that we serve. First, Tim Grove talks about equity and the troubles with our focus on individual efficacy and healing, while often ignoring the damaged systems and communities those individuals work and live in. Jennifer Jones follows Tim with a call to shift our focus more towards those community-level solutions. And then Brian Samuels discusses the tension between our system timelines and the ability to create authentic community engagement and trusting relationships. As always, Please share your feedback with us in the ratings and comments section wherever you listen to this podcast. Now, on to the episode.
2: I think a lot of people are having this conversation, and... And I think there's a national trend going on too, right? Have we been too hyper-focused on individual efficiency? And what I mean by that is what we tend to do is recognize and reward the individual performers for managing a remarkably high caseload, right? So we will laud them. We will say things like, you're the employee of the month or you're the employee of the year. We'll give them a big award for whatever. I think with really good intention, quite frankly, but I start to worry, well, what message does that send everybody else about what's required to perform the basic duties of the job, right? So I think a lot of systems are starting to push back a little bit on that and saying, can we have a both-and discussion here? Sure, we want to encourage people to be efficient and be productive. But if we keep loading them collectively with too much of an ask, whether it's students in a classroom, whether it's patients per day, whether it's sort of families per case manager... We run the risk, especially in the conditions we're in today, of burning quite a few of them out. And some would say creating a little bit of moral injury for those individuals who want to help, who want to be compassionate, who want to be empathic, and would argue they just can't, when we blame them versus looking at systemic responses Uh, I think we potentially do a little bit of harm and need to rethink that. And the irony is not lost on me. Advocates in disenfranchised communities have been arguing this for years. If we just exclusively assess, diagnose, and treat the individual, Without addressing the conditions, back to Dr. Ellis' characterization of what's going on in the ground under under the roots in the soil, we kind of like the veteran metaphor would be, well, we'll treat your PTSD and then keep sending you into combat. And we'll treat your PTSD and keep sending you into combat with the combat never ending, right? So if we hear that wisdom from advocates in these communities who have said, you've got to address the systemic stuff, equity has to be a priority. There's a reason at WellPoint why equity became the first word in our mission statement. And some of that reason, there are other reasons for it, is embedded in this conversation. It, it can be kind of victim blaming to keep saying to somebody, heal your trauma, if only to send them back out to a community in a world where those systemic processes are still occurring.
3: You know, for decades, our uh, interventions and policy responses um, have been directed towards this idea of addressing individual behaviors. Same with resilience, right? We all believe that resilience is internal and and that uh, we have to make people more resilient. But we're not actually addressing the systemic issues that are contributing to generations of trauma. And so, again, I think it's absolutely essential and imperative that if we're going to move or make any movement uh, to change these cycles uh, of intergenerational trauma, to impact these inequities that exist, not just in Wisconsin, but we know exist all over the country, that we have to not only address the individual ACEs and adversity, but the conditions and systems in which people live. And that's why we love Dr. uh, We love Wendy Ellis's work around the pair of ACEs, because it really brings that to the forefront. It It not only shows and represents What we all experience, a a majority of us have experienced adverse childhood experiences, have ACEs, have an ACE score. And it really brings to light the inequities that actually make it even harder for for people to to be well and to be healthy um, and to not participate in in risky behaviors.
0: We often have uh, a genuine sense of authenticity when we go to the community, right? That we're going there because we want kind of an unvarnished understanding of what's happening, right? That we want to get unique insights into the specific dynamics that are producing higher rates um, of neglect cases, for example. But we often miss the opportunity to recognize um, that the relationships that are needed to get into communities and to successfully leverage the assets that exist there uh, requires trust building and power sharing, right? And so it's often important to think about the process of community as one that begins with building trust. And across time, one then leverages that trust to get the information and the resources necessary to make change happen. Um, So that trust component to the community change is really critical. Uh, And when we're faced with tough timelines, Uh, we tend to ignore the trust-building aspects um, of the work, and in doing so we diminish the likelihood that we're going to get the kind of engagement necessary to truly make change happen at the community level.
1: As you just heard from Tim, Jennifer, and Brian, if we are to improve outcomes for individuals, we must improve the communities and conditions in which those individuals work and live. How might we, as Tim shared, heal our communities so that individual healing is not met with the same combat that hurt them in the first place. More specifically, how might we, as Brian discussed, create community pathways that are led by the community and supported by system timelines, policies, and resources so that trust can be built and sustained. In this next segment, Dr. Julie Woodbury, Brian, and Tim offer some strategies to challenge our mental models that might provide some answers to those questions.
4: Typically, I, ask, I just ask questions. What do you think the biggest problem is with whatever the topic is in the community? I just ask them what they think the biggest issues are. What are the top three issues? Or And then ask them how they think we could move the needle you know, on a scale of one to five, one being the, the worst, five being the best, where do you think we sit for child abuse and neglect issues? And if they say three, and then I say, well, how do you, how do you think we can get it to a four? And if they throw out a solution, I'll be like, wow, that's really interesting. And if, if it's a different conversation, and we're talking about, you know, parenting, for example, and it's, you know, the parents today are X, Y, and Z awful. and I And I ask, like, what do you do differently than your parents did to make you a better parent now? And they usually give me something, whatever that might've been. I say, well, so how do you know that they're not doing one thing differently than their parents did? What does that say about their childhood? And it really, it gives them a different perspective as to how to look at the parenting piece through a very different lens. Like we judge others on their behaviors and ourselves on our intentions It's a very different view when you think about if we just assume everybody's doing the best they possibly can, it's a very different picture.
0: There are basically five components to thinking about that community change, right? So one is really around transformation and systems transformation through putting communities in the lead, right? And so that's about changing one's framework and understanding of community as this unique place um, where specific knowledge about families and traditions and resources come together, right? That it's about that, that transformational process is about giving people voice, creating space for them to take action, um, for them to learn the skills and competencies they need to be an effective uh, leader. So transformation is a really critical component of trying to shift this paradigm and move towards community empowerment. But there's also a need to change the way we think about communities and think about families, right? That in a social service or human service system, we tend to think about families um, as individuals who have problems that need to be solved, right? Not people that have strengths and assets that are required uh, in order to leverage, right? And so, Part of what folks have to do as they move towards um, a community framework is really recognize that there are assets that already exist in the community, that that community process is about working through and identifying all of those nuggets of useful information about how to make change happen.
2: I think if I channel what I've learned from some of the scholars and colleagues of, of color who talk about benevolent systems? One of the arguments that would be made is if your intentions are benevolent, but you're not addressing bias, and your outcomes, therefore, are non benevolent, how do we characterize the system? So, I mean, I I know we're preaching to the choir on this, at least I hope. Uh, Bias is a really good place for people to start in the equity journey and start to learn about it and unpack it. So you truly can give benevolence when that's your intention. Yeah, and I think uh, there's evidence of some of that happening already. There's certainly evidence of people in the employment support space trying to leverage stress, resilience, adversity, trauma conversations to increase uh, a worker retention outcomes, right? So I get excited and think, hey, if you're willing to come along on this trauma journey, that's great, but will you come the whole way? Will you then talk about historical trauma with us? Will you then talk about equity with us? Because then I start to think, well, if we can live in a community where most folks are willing to go the distance and sort of fully appreciate not just stress, adversity, resilience, and trauma, but historical intergenerational trauma and the importance of equity, we, we can do some stuff. Um, we can maybe, for everybody, not just for a select few, create the community we want people to live in.
1: I have been thinking often about Julie's statement that we judge others on their behaviors and ourselves on our intentions, and how powerful the act of flipping that dynamic would be in building empathy for others. I promised to do my best to bring attention to the small details, so I hope that a brief reflection on Julie's wisdom shows that I'm trying. Then Brian and Tim follow with a reminder that while we often are immersed in the struggles of families, we should not only never lose sight of their many strengths and aspirations, also celebrate and be guided by them in our service and relationships. In this next segment, we will explore how our mental models influence our relationships and the power dynamics that serve as a barrier when unequal, but also as a tremendous opportunity when shared. First, Brigetta Wilson talks about leveling the playing field by giving families real opportunities for ownership in their lives. Then Brian and Hannah Kirk discuss how our child welfare systems can share power and and give individuals and communities leadership and ownership over their transformation. And Brigetta finishes the segment by challenging the power dynamic that shows up in court and how consistency and language can build trust when employed with compassion or create a sense of othering and isolation when it's not.
5: I think that it's important that we hold our systems accountable. Also, realize that, like, Systems, like people make up system. people. So it's not like it's this is the system and then we all go there. No, we, we make up the system, the people who work for the system. When we are hearing stories and hearing real lived experience situations or getting complaints about things that we know we've heard more than once and we are consciously not doing what we can in our seat to make a change, then that's where we face some of those, those challenges around being willing to move the needle. You know, one of my colleagues who I work with at Children, he used to always say, how do we create an even playing field for families? You know, and what, what would that look like for everyone to have equal opportunity? How w- what would that be like? If we can all just sit here and imagine that.
0: There are a number of examples um, of this work. Um, There was work done uh, by the California Endowment, uh, where they stood up community-based initiatives in 10 communities around the state and did the kind of trust-building activity Did the kind of long-term investment activity, did the kind of engagement of policymakers. They did all of the work necessary to to talk about the kinds of changes that most people want to see through this community level work. But uh, they weren't equally successful across all 10 of those communities. So I would argue that the California endowments work is really um, a great example of trying to engage and partner uh, with communities. But if you go to one single of one of those 10 communities, you won't see all of the elements of what it takes to really make meaningful change. But if you look at the totality of their experience, then you get a much richer um, picture and you get a, a more sophisticated understanding of how change really happens.
6: Our role and responsibility is to work with both biological families and foster families. Um, Because the majority of our clients are entering out-of-home care, um, we are working with both families um, equally. And so once a family or a child is removed from the home and comes to care, our responsibility is then to provide services, both formal and informal, for our clients to build up that strength and to not just have them rely on formal supports, not just rely on their case manager or a psychologist or somebody like that. But a lot of our families don't have informal supports or stable supports that they can rely on. And so helping them build that community is essential. And that's one of our responsibilities. Our ultimate goal is always reunification. If a child is separated from his or her family, we always want to try to get that child home.
5: You know, one of the things um, some of the, our partners will say around lived experience is the, um, the consistency of a child welfare professional. To consistently show up and say the same thing that you would say to me in front of the court. You know, we hear, we got to court and they didn't say that. They didn't tell me these things or that was something totally different than what I shared with them. So how do we... Encourage or port child welfare professionals to be consistent and to be accountable to the families versus being accountable to the courts, because the court system is another level of oppression in some ways. It's another level of fear, another level of insecurities. Walking into a courtroom, a families, you know, we've heard families don't feel like they have a voice in the courtroom. How do we create that space? And one of the things that you know, just to give you a little story, I like I like stories. I recently became a member of the Wisconsin Children's Commission in Courts, which is a council that meets like twice or three times a year. And I attended my first meeting on behalf of lived experience, and there was different judges from you know all across the state there, and we were talking about language. We were talking about how do we talk about families in the courtroom, and I made a comment and I said, instead of saying the parent or the youth, they have a name. We see that there on that paper that is in front of us. Why do we have to use that language in a space where we're addressing others by name, but we're terrorizing almost? a family in a courtroom space by saying the parent or the youth. A word that can be a lot friendlier and welcoming is the family because that's what really matters. That's why we're in court to begin with because of the family unit and what's happening. And so I said that, and one of the judges says to me, I didn't even think about it that way. I didn't even, oh, wow. It was almost like her aha moment. It takes more of these conversations to bring these things to others' perspectives so that they can see how they, in their seat that they sit in, can encourage and support families in a way that is more of helping than hurting.
3: If we
1: have listened to these many different approaches that encourage us to challenge our own biases power imbalances, and inequities that breed mistrust, and reflected on how we might approach our own mental models, power dynamics, and relationships differently, we may see openings to alternative or innovative approaches to our child welfare policies, practices, and resource flows. Changing population-level outcomes, as Tim, Jennifer, and Brian mentioned at the beginning of this episode, requires policies, practices, and resources to address the underlying root causes that we've discussed. In this coming segment, we will hear from Brian, Dr. Slack, Jennifer Jones, and Brigetta as they offer some concrete examples of current policies such as the Family First Prevention Services Act, prevention models such as home visiting and family resource centers, and concrete economic supports for families through our social safety net and home ownership to address the underlying root causes of poverty, systemic oppression, and trauma. As you are listening to them speak, search for those invisible, or mundane details that often get hidden behind the policies or funding, but can serve as those connections or belief systems that we've learned are just as important.
0: Thinking through community pathways is really one of the innovations that has emerged out of the Family First Prevention Services Act. This idea um, that, that you need multiple pathways support, right? The recognition that all families need support um, at different times in life. Uh, and you need to be able to provide multiple pathways in order for them to get the help that they need, right? If you reserve help uh, only through one vehicle, uh, you limit the likelihood of meeting the needs of families. So conceptually, Family First has put forward this idea of Um, that you need to begin to look at multiple ways in which people can get the, the help that they need. However, it's a really great idea that communities need to be able to pick up and run with, right? So we can kind of cobble together prior experiences to begin to outline what steps you might need to take to create these pathways, but it's really a big idea more so than it is an evidence-based strategy, right? And so what's exciting is that there's enough flexibility in family first that one could imagine these new community pathways, right? So home visiting would be one example of a community pathway to accessing services that don't require the child welfare system as involvement, but also uh, isn't the solution for all families, right? But it's one community pathway towards help. Um, You can imagine a family resource center. Sometimes those family resource centers are connected to schools. As another pathway, family resource centers where families can go during the day to sit together and have a cup of coffee, to talk about the challenges that their kids are facing, to find out about available community resources, having a, a family support program Uh, a family resource center in a community could become another pathway uh, towards getting the assistance that you need before you need a child welfare uh, intervention. So it's a big idea. Um, I think you can give examples of those pathways, um, but I think it's a space uh, where there's a lot of creativity going to be available for communities to really begin to identify what are the pathways that are most likely to achieve these positive outcomes and how do we as a community bring them together
7: you know usually when a family's deflected from cps they may get a, a phone number or a, or you know to call but there's no systematic outreach done or or services offered to that population even though they constitute 80% of the families who have any contact with child welfare so it's a moment in time you know where you you may want to do some outreach but I also think if you had, you know, a program like Community Response that, that families just were aware of and could ask for help, this may be like family resource centers kind of thing, you know, um, if they can build into their model the uh, a more rigorous approach to helping families with their economic situations. You know, just these community-based voluntary agencies and programs that families know to go to when there's economic crisis or something that can be solved just by linking to existing programs that are out there and, may, you know,
3: helping them function better. We do as well know, on the other hand, that states that, that have limited, implemented time limits of, of, uh, of less than five years, that families can actually receive assistance through, through TANF, which is the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Federal Program those states actually saw a 33% increase in neglect. And there are plenty of of advocates like like ourselves and researchers that argue that the reason child neglect has not decreased in our country is actually due to failures at the policy level and the systems level to recognize and implement these economic and concrete supports as a strategy to prevent child maltreatment.
5: What we hear that... One of the main struggles that our families face outside of sometimes mental health and substance abuse is housing. The book Evicted written here in Milwaukee, it talked about how a lot of women, African-American women who had children either in care or, you know, they had spouses or partners that were incarcerated, struggle with the eviction of being able to have stable housing. And recently, Milwaukee was just recognized for having the the lowest homelessness rate. And I asked myself, well, that's, is that because we changed how we defined homelessness? Because now, when we look at homelessness, it's more so if you're out on the street. But it it doesn't mean, oh, you're sleeping on your cousin's couch, or you're sleeping on your uncle's couch, or you're sleeping in your car. That definition of homelessness is not the same. We sometimes put silver lining on things, to just satisfy sometimes our sense of self-efficacy without really challenging ourselves to really lean into how do we really end homelessness? How do we really create not just end homelessness, but economic stability and generational wealth for those who have been oppressed for so long? What would it look like if we would have said... Okay, if you're currently experiencing homelessness or if you're currently looking for a house, how can we work with those people to put them in a home that they can own? Because then that increases their sense of self-efficacy and their desire to want to maintain that home. If you give someone, it's like if you buy something at the store that you really value, you're going to take care of it. If we give our families opportunities to purchase homes they're going to probably take a better care of it than they would of renting. And if we teach them, if we create these social supports around them, you know, we have wraparound services and we have all these fancy words that we use. But are we really doing that when you think about systems and thinking about addressing poverty from some of that, from that perspective?
1: In this final segment, we will hear more from Dr. Christy Slack and Brian as they talk about the complexity of systems integration and collaboration. While you are listening, ask yourself how might we bring the many systems that can strengthen families together without creating more burden or stress on the families they intend to serve? How might we develop a child and family well being system that seeks to keep families together and strengthen their communities and potential for growth and prosperity?
7: It, this goes in waves. So I was just talking to a colleague about this newest wave of sort of advocating for more systems integration, um, both external to child welfare and including child welfare systems. And she was kind of joking that she's been around long enough that this has come up about five times over the course of her, her career. Um, but it's getting a re- renewed attention today with a, a couple frameworks that are out there um, around system synergy or systems integration or cross systems collaboration and um, on the one hand I think that the systems that are supposed to offer and provide and help with economic stability definitely need better coordination. I have uh, reservations about completely integrating a child welfare system with those other systems that comprise our economic safety net, just because our economic safety net also isn't perfect, and there are some, you know, some potential worries or caveats about um, sharing information across those systems with child welfare and what that would do to increase sort of information about families, and disproportionately so, as well as potential increased surveillance of families in ways that might heighten their risk of being noticed and reported to child welfare. But I certainly think we could think at least about families who come to the attention of child welfare who are experiencing a moment of crisis and extreme need. Perhaps there's a way to prioritize receiving benefits and supports from some of these other systems instead of just, you know, giving families a phone number or, you know, in, in the worst case scenario, which we, we still do with some of our benefit programs, you you take away that stream of benefits while a family and, you know, parents and kids are separated and, and kids are in foster care, um, which can just destabilize a family further and make it more difficult to reunify kids. So because these other siloed systems often don't talk to each other or with the child welfare system, there's lots of unintended consequences happening all over the place. And there needs to be sort of a bigger bird's eye view of how we reconcile those problems in a way that is more supportive, you know, to families who come to the attention of child welfare and more supportive in the hopes that they it avo- it prevents that from happening.
0: There are a couple of critical elements to that kind of more integrated approach to state and local agencies um, delivering services. One is people need to be looking at the actual policies that keep agencies separate, right? The the tendency um, is to assume that there's greater room for collaboration than the policy sometimes allows, right? So if you're going to be thoughtful and deliberate about building a strategy uh understanding the underlying policies that are the barriers to uh integration is one really really important step. So I remember when I worked in the federal government in child welfare, I knew I wanted to move towards this well-being framework uh that delivered more effective um programs and services to families um that are involved in the child welfare system and I thought I understood uh the role that Medicaid played. In delivering those services so i thought that i could advocate uh, for using medicaid to do what i wanted medicaid to do but in order to move that kind of approach forward i needed to go talk to medicaid and the more i talked to medicaid the more i understood why they weren't delivering the services that i wanted them to deliver right uh, in part because medicaid as an organization doesn't see itself as as an entity that delivers services. When you look at their policy framework, what you learn is that Medicaid's purpose is to provide the resources, the financial resources to states to then determine how to deliver service. So I was assuming that Medicaid could do something for me, that once I understood the underlying policy, it became clear to me that. Medicaid alone couldn't do what I needed them to do. Having said that, sitting with Medicaid and understanding their policies also meant that I had to describe the policies that existed in child welfare. And so they gained new insights into the the scope of my authority um, as the leader um, of child welfare. Uh, And it was both of us sitting at the table together talking about the policies that relate to one another that allowed us to figure out ways around the policies or gave us creative insights uh, that we wouldn't have had if we weren't at the table together talking about um, the capacity that each agency has. So this idea of community integration of service delivery requires government agencies to really look at the policies that they have in front of them and really figure out um, how to move closer to one another. Uh, So that kind of integration can happen. So that's one thing that I would argue. The the second thing that that I would argue is money. Uh, And money takes time, right? Which is that if you're going to create these integrated approaches, um, folks need more flexible money. And that means being purposeful around building budgets at the state uh, and local level um, that create more flexible funds. Um, If you don't have flexibility, sometimes you don't have the glue you need to bring those agency services together. But there are a lot of good examples of people who have braided funding, who also had some funds that just keep the glue of a strategy together. And then the third of this uh, complicated approach uh, that I've just described, the third element of that is time. This is really hard work. The work we were doing with Medicaid, we did over a four-year period of time. And I thought we only scratched the surface of what was possible. So states, states, and local government have to really commit time uh, to these more integrated efforts than they're often prepared to dedicate. But without time, you can't figure out and understand the policies that are keeping you apart from one another, and you can't figure out the best way to use money to glue things together. So time is the third uh, critical element to creating these more integrated systems at the state and local level, which then facilitate better service delivery at the local level.
1: Today's episode was intended to provide a framework, along with some concrete examples of how we might move our child welfare system towards a child and family well-being system. It was not, of course, pretending to have all the answers or solutions. I hope that it has, at the very least, provided an initial framework along with some inspiration as to how each of us has the power to influence systems change through the seemingly small acts of compassion and challenging our own biases. However, it is through those mundane or invisible details where real change begins, especially in a system and society where historical inequities and trauma have deep roots that persist today. How might we challenge those inequities in our policies and practices within our own organizations? How might we share power, leadership, and decision-making with those that we serve? And how might we learn from the policies and practices that have allowed families to fall or be separated before we actively supported them? In the final episodes of this series, we will explore those questions further in hopes that we can provide a blueprint towards our goal of reducing family separations for reasons of neglect. But before we go today, as always, I wanted to highlight three key takeaways to reflect on as we move into our next episodes. One, if we truly confront our biases, if we challenge ourselves to see others for their intentions and aspirations rather than their darkest moments, we set a foundation for personal and even systems change. Two, the child welfare system and those that work in it need support to be able to do what they came to do for families, build strong relationships so that they can empower them to be their best selves. That support needs to come from policies and practices that prioritize trust, not timelines, as Brigetta, Tim, and Brian all discussed today. Three, if the child welfare system should be committing its policies, practices, and resources to accomplishing what Tim and Jennifer stated powerfully in our opening, to healing and empowering communities so that children and families are no longer exposed to the traumas, the combat that they have had to endure and survive because of our systemic failures, we will have accomplished meaningful, life-changing systems change. Thank you for joining us for this sixth episode. We hope that you will come back and listen to our seventh episode next week as we explore how prevention programs and strategies can support overloaded families and reduce family separations for reasons of neglect. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share with friends, family, and colleagues Also, if you rate us on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on, it makes it easier for others to find us. To learn more about the experts that you heard today, visit the show notes, which is where you will also find links to sources or information that were mentioned in today's episode. Thank you again for joining us. See you next week. This podcast would not have been possible without the support and talents of Carrie Wade who is responsible for our technical production and original music composition. I can't express my gratitude enough to Carrie for all she gave to this project. I'm also grateful to Gabe McGahee, our co-director here at the Institute for Child and Family Wellbeing, who contributed to the ideas behind this podcast and interviewed some of our experts. Finally, I would like to thank all of our speakers that you have heard today and throughout the podcast for their partnership, their willingness to share their stories and expertise with me and all of you, and their commitment to improving the lives of children and families. I'm Luke Waldo, your host and executive editor. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.